Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this episode, we're looking at age-restricted sales. It seems like barely a week goes by without the news of another knife attack victim hitting the headlines. Whatever the factors that are driving the phenomenon, it's clear that knife crime is on the increase and there's a real sense of urgency around tackling the problem. A big part of society's efforts to reduce crimes involving knives focuses on preventing them from getting into the wrong hands, and part of that responsibility lies with trading standards, which works with retailers, the police and other authorities to ensure that young people are protected from a range of potentially harmful products. From knives, corrosive substances, fireworks and solvents, to tobacco and alcohol, as well as pastimes such as gambling. We spoke to CTSI lead officers Brandon Cook and Veronica McGinley, as well as Tony Allen, Chief Executive of the Age Check Certification Scheme, about the challenges they face when cracking down on age-restricted sales, best practice tips for retailers and trading standards professionals, and why it's so important to protect children and youngsters from harm. Brandon Cook kicks us off. Yeah, I'm Brandon Cook. I'm one of the lead officers for age-restricted sales for the Chartered Trading Standards Institute. I've been in this role for about 14 years, I think. Uh, I've seen lots of changes in that time. At the beginning, age-restricted sales was really high priority. Um, retailers weren't really doing a very good job. It hadn't been policed in many areas, particularly alcohol, where the police um, were, were taking the lead. Changes in legislation led to, to trading standards getting involved and quite a lot of funding from government departments meant we did lots more work. That's been through a bit of a lull, and um, but as most people will be aware, knife crime has become quite a big issue, so our, our sort of attention's been drawn to that and we're far more involved in getting things done. Veronica McGindy, who's based in Scotland, is also a lead officer for age-restricted sales. Hello, my name's Veronica McGinley. I'm a Trading Standards Officer with Inverclyde Council. I've been a Trading Standards Officer. I joined the service in 1984. Um, I'm currently a team leader uh, for Trading Standards and Enforcement, and uh, my day-to-day job concludes most of the Trading Standards remit. I have um, several officers within my team. It's a multidiscipline team, so it's not just Trading Standards, so we don't just do only consumer protection work. I have um, another Trading Standards Officer. There should be two, but there's only one post, because obviously budget cuts we don't backfill all the time. I have three enforcement officers, um, one of whom is a tobacco nicotine vapour vapor product officer, um, two LSOs, um, and one of which does civic, uh, Government Scotland work as well, so, so civic enforcement work. Um, and then I have seven officers who rotate between decriminalised parking and environmental enforcement, so that's dog fouling, fly tipping, litter at a drop and smoking in a public place. So how did you come to get involved in tackling underage sales? Well, I think probably when we started off, we would never really have done. Age-restricted products wasn't in our remit at all, so we'd be traditionally weights and measures, um, safety, fair trading. And then probably in the 90s, we took on um, age-restricted products around, around the health work done around tobacco, so really that's where it all started off. The, the harsh facts were that young people were smoking, and the age at that time would be 16, and what were we going to do about it as a country, really, because obviously um, the World Health Organisation says that that's the single most preventative cause 
of death and young people take up smoking at an early age, you know, their, their choices then become limited if they're, you know, they are addicted to nicotine. So there was a kind of a, a health emphasis on why um, selling products to, to children was happening. So that was the start of it for me anyway. And how, how does the different legislative landscape in Scotland affect your remit? Well, in Scotland, we don't do alcohol. That's the, the police do alcohol and knives in Scotland at all. Um, so we would do tobacco, nicotine vapour products, cigarette papers, um, butane gas, DVDs, films, games, um, spray paints are all done by ourselves. So um, you have to look at why we age restrict products. And if you look around, you know, games and DVDs are a kind of moral issue. You know, you maybe don't want children to see violence or drug use. Um, if you look at products like tobacco and alcohol, they're more health-related. You don't want young people to take up these products too early because their bodies are still developing. And some of the other problems are, are maybe crime and disorder or antisocial behaviour. So you know, that's, that comes round to knives, alcohol as well. So you're looking at preventing antisocial behaviour. So there's lots of reasons why age-restricted products are, have a restriction on them. Brandon, what, what do you think drives the agenda when it comes to policy decisions around age-restricted sales? Do you think current events in the news have a big effect? I think it is almost in, entirely led by the news. So the, the news and, and government are probably working hand in hand, I suppose. Uh, they're both reacting to an issue in society, whether it's a health or a safety matter, which age-restricted products tend to relate to. Then there's a reaction and maybe a passing of new legislation, maybe an increase in emphasis of enforcement, working with businesses that uh, at times has come with additional funding. We react according to it. We try to influence the legislation. We influence the way some of that funding is spent and, and what we can do with it. And we try and ensure that we work with businesses so that whilst there might be 200 trading standards authorities uh, or thereabouts, we try and act in a, a coordinated and uniform way which actually helps business but actually it helps compliance and therefore helps the, the consumer and, and the public in the end. I, I know that CTSI has been involved in discussions around the Offensive Weapons Bill. The Offensive Weapons Bill was um, introduced into Parliament probably 12 months ago now mainly as a response to the corrosive substances problems so acid attacks in particular, that were well publicised and, and the prevalence of that. So at that time, selling corrosive substances, alkalis and acids, weren't it wasn't an offence under 18 and, and still isn't, of course, because the legislation hasn't been passed yet. So this was a reaction to that and also the increase in knife crime. So um, whilst the legislation was talked about probably 18 months to two years ago, it's still on its way through. So there will be changes. Now... The, whilst we, we welcome some of the changes to the sale of knives, so online sale of knives, uh, it's banned to, or will be banned to supply the knife or bladed item to a residential premise. So that, that's quite a change, and that is, is obviously around proving who, it, who the buyer is and the fact that they're over 18. That, that's the intention there. Whilst that might be something that trading standards will be expected to get involved in, there were two angles that we looked at from the institute perspective is is it a, a duty for local authorities and furthermore are there any powers for us to carry out an investigation afterwards now clearly under the local government act we can take the action and we could bring a prosecution but 
do the officers themselves have investigative powers to request information, demand information, seize evidence and so on, which may be required to, to carry out a prosecution, and that, that wasn't there. So at the moment, the amendments that we've managed to get through um, to the, the latter stages uh, are around the duty and also around powers to enforce the legislation. So what, what are the implications of making it a statutory duty for trading standards? I think based on uh, resource uh, implications, then it's, it's quite powerful for a local authority trading standards service to be able to say to, to their local authority, this is a statutory duty, we, we have to ensure that we've got some resource to, to do something about knife crime and corrosive substances. If it isn't, then it's um, sort of a, a choice of whether they do it or whether they don't. Um, so it, it can be quite a powerful and useful tool that way. As regards doing it, the, the duty doesn't actually make it any different. I mean, we, we can still do it anyway because we're acting in the interests of, of our residents within a local authority area. The more important thing for me is, is having the powers so that if we're investigating a knife crime and on, online sale, there's clearly quite a lot we need to prove. We need to prove that, first of all, the, the business did in fact deliver to a residential premise, what actions they took to determine whether it's residential or not. And this will require us getting access to the, their company records and their training documents and so on and so forth. If we can't access that, if we're told, no, no thank you, we're, we're not going to play ball with you, then having no powers leaves us in a position where we can't prove an offence and, and we can't pursue it to court. So it's very difficult without any powers. It's far more difficult with an online retailer than it would be with a with a, a retailer on the high street. What are the challenges of tackling age-restricted sales online? We have to consider how we're actually going to complete the, the purchase, who's going to do it, um, where we're going to do it, how we ensure that we're not being identified as a local authority making the purchase. So typically that means a, a standalone PC uh, that can't be detected, uh, ensuring that somehow we, we capture the the evidence of the sale. So we record the every click on the on the screen and re- record what we're seeing. We also need to be looking at terms and conditions on their site and everything that we're sort of committing to. So if we're clicking to say we've read the terms and conditions, we need to see what's in the terms and conditions and, and capture everything at that time as well. Because of course, a website can be updated and edited day to day so it's not it's not good enough to think um, a month later we're now going to carry out the investigation bit and, and interview the business and find that the website's all changed and we don't know what it said at the time when the offence was committed. Tony Allen's a trading standards practitioner and he's chief executive of the age check verification scheme. I asked him about the work he focuses on so what we do as a scheme is we basically check that age gateways work. Uh, an age gateway is where you attempt to purchase or access age-restricted goods, services or content. And I, uh, I and the team here, basically, we check that that works. That you, so we do it through test purchasing, we do it through online checks, we do it through gateway checks, uh, we do it through systems development and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So talk us through how you go about making test purchases. So we do uh, different types of test purchasing depending on what it is that's being purchased. Because we're being commissioned by the companies, 
Um, we will do test purchasing using over 18-year-olds uh, when we're doing uh, physical uh, test purchasing in retail stores. Um, they'll be aged 18 or 19 years old. And what we're testing there is that the system works. That is that they should be being challenged for ID. But if they are sold alcohol or tobacco or whatever it is, uh, no uh, offence will have occurred. It will be um, uh, checking their Challenge 25 policy is working. And then we have uh, online tests where we do what are called positive and negative gateway tests. So a positive gateway test is where we use somebody over the age of 18 to see whether or not the actual gateway works and it comes up and it takes them through the process of their age verification. And a negative gateway test is where we would use somebody under the age of 18 but the issue with somebody uh, under the age of 18 is that they should be almost immediately restricted from accessing the product. So they will only get partway through the gateway. So it's not that doesn't give you a full gateway test. It gives you a, literally, they should get blocked straight away. And, and that can be immediate. It can be, um, uh, you know, as soon as you click onto something, it could block you from accessing it straight away. And when you're carrying out an audit of a retailer, what are you looking for? Basically, they have to be able to demonstrate that they've taken all reasonable precautions and exercised all due diligence. So the reasonable precautions are then putting in place procedures to make sure that their staff are trained, that they've got posters, and they create an expectation of challenge. Due diligence is checking that those systems work, and that's where we come in. So we can help them to uh, test them to ensure that they work, and we provide a certificate of conformity or a monitoring report or whatever it is. And, and that is the information that they need to be able to present to law enforcement as their evidence of having taken reasonable precautions and exercised due diligence. In, in your experience, are retailers getting better at preventing underage sales? Retailers are generally getting better at it. Um, it has been on the rise uh, over the last 10 years or so. Correspondingly, the, uh, the trading standards tests, which are obviously using underage, have been on the decline as well in terms of the, re- the failure um, rates. It's very difficult to draw comparisons, though, because um, with trading standards, for instance, the tests that they're doing tend to be intelligence-led tests and so therefore you're starting off with a cohort that the trading standards officers believe are much more likely to fail and so therefore it's not very fair to use it as a comparison across the whole of the retail estate when you know the vast majority of retailers do do what is necessary and right to put in place training and um, uh, prevention measures. What, what do you think is driving that improvement? I think one of the biggest things that drove it was the work on Challenge 25, which was an industry-led initiative. Uh, That's now been going for a little over 10 years. That is the red and black posters that you see all over the place saying, are you under 25, be prepared to show ID. That is uh, now applicable across the vast majority of retailers and indeed in a lot of the nighttime economy as well. So that has had the biggest impact. And that, with that has come training and uh, investment in uh, ensuring that people get this right. And that's helped. The other thing that's made a big difference as well is the advent of technology. Um, so we now have uh, tills that will prompt age check warnings. We have tills that have got age estimation tools on them. Uh, we have uh, digital IDs. We have various things that are coming to the marketplace and and all of those things are creating uh the um uh, the access to uh, support materials i think the third thing that has happened which has uh, made a big difference is is a bit of a cultural shift from uh, a situation where you know kids were quite rarely ever asked for id 
10, 15, 20 years ago to the last 10 years or so where it's just become normal. It's become part and parcel of being a young person. You're regularly asked for ID. You have your ID on you. Um, there's much less of a uh, point of conflict now there than there perhaps was uh, 10 to 20 years ago. I asked Veronica how her and her team go about investigating particular retailers and what tools they have at their disposal. Legislation in Scotland is slightly different from the rest of the UK, particularly around tobacco, um, in that um, the, the premises have to be registered with the Scottish Retailers Registration Scheme. So the Scottish Government has set this up. It doesn't cost traders to do that. So we know where they all are, and that means that we can target enforcement towards them. It doesn't necessarily mean to be test purchasing. That enforcement can be business advice. So it could be giving them um, information how to prevent sales, chatting with them around the changes in the legislation been massive changes set in legislation around tobacco in particular over the last four or five years so there's been a lot of support given to retailers um, but we do get complaints in and most of the test purchasing itself is intelligence led and in Scotland we have been given funding by the Scottish Government for the last number of years um, one to fund posts um, when the Tobacco and Primary Medical Services Scotland Act came in and then secondly we get funding on a year on basis to um, give advice to 20% of all retailers and to test purchase from 20, uh, 10% of all retailers, so that 20-10% happens every year. So that, that's to encourage you to, 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 to speak to your traders and to go out and, and visit them and, and to give them a good advice on how to prevent sales. Brandon, when it comes to goods being sold to people who are underage in shops, what are the most common reasons? I think at the end of the day, it's always down to the, the, the person making the sale. So uh, the, the front line of enforcement, as it were, is is the member of staff that that's at the till, or, or sticking the the product in a package and and sending it out on online sales. And it's it's easy for that person to not care that much. I suppose they may not have a particular interest in the business. They might be passing through. It might be temporary staff. It might be a very long day, and they've got an awful lot of other things on their mind. There can be an awful lot of different things that, that can affect whether that person will make that sale or not. I think, and, and for the bigger business, it's whereabouts on their priority list is complying with the age restriction law. And clearly making a profit is probably higher up their agenda than everything else. So most retailers of knives, you will find sharp kitchen knives and, and similar on sale within the shop hanging on the rack alongside sort of baked beans and and other fairly safe products Uh, if they truly didn't want to sell knives they could treat them in the same way as they treat tobacco and have it in a concession type counter where they have to be served by an individual so that happens with fireworks every year it happens with tobacco all year round why not knives and it's sort of do they really want to prevent the sale of knives or, or not. And Veronica, what do you think? The majority, the vast majority of traders do not want to sell products to young people. Mistakes and accidents happen. You do get the odd trader who does will sell, and that's what they're going to do. But the vast majority of traders do not want to sell to young people. You know that that's that's definitely what it is. They, they do not want to sell to young people. Brandon, with the current knife crime epidemic, do we know whether there's a correlation between underage sales of knives and actual violent incidents? At the moment, we lack real information as regards the source of knives and who's buying them. So every week, and often more often, we're hearing in the news that 
someone under the age of 18 is committing an offence with a knife, carrying it, or assaulting somebody, or, or worse. What we don't know is, did they buy that knife themselves, and, and from where? It's not information that's gathered by the by the police or by accident and emergency. So having the the intelligence to decide where we put our resource is is quite difficult so uh, whether that's a proxy sale it could be it could be that i'm not sure they they stand outside asking strangers to buy them knives i find that uh, would be quite difficult to achieve but it might be an older friend or an older brother or sister for instance getting hold of a knife for them but really what we don't know the information that we've asked for lots of times from the home office and, and the police is what proportion of knives are actually being bought or or even stolen from shops specifically to commit crime or if if a, a youth wants to commit a crime do they go and get a knife out of the kitchen drawer now clearly they're, they're quite readily available at home they're not on the lock and key there so without that information we, we really do struggle whereas with alcohol and tobacco we knew and still do know quite a lot of the picture about how many people and which people are buying the cigarettes and alcohol we don't know that for knives and tony what do you think are the main drivers of the problem around knife sales or any age-restricted products are they mostly economic do you think so there are a number of uh, societal uh, drivers for children accessing products that they shouldn't have access to But I don't think it's as easy to pin that down to necessarily being uh, economic drivers. As an example, you know, if you look at the top 20 places in England where there is a higher prevalence of teenage smoking than other areas, yes, you have areas where you have high levels of deprivation, but you also have Runnymede Borough in Surrey County area, which is at the very other end of the scale. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that there's an economic driver. When you look at knife carrying and knife crime, I think there is a particular issue in the cities and big conurbations. But again, you you can't necessarily say that that is to do with, with poverty or to do with young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Clearly, young people from disadvantaged backgrounds are getting involved in knife crime. But equally, uh, there was a murder in um, an area of uh, Greater Manchester called uh, Hale, uh, which is the posh end of posh, uh, very recently, where you you haven't got uh, deprivation. It's not so easy to draw that line. Uh, And you have a situation where kids are carrying knives not just because they want to rob people or become... Uh, or defend themselves they're carrying it as fashion statements as part of a cultural uh, thing that's going on at the moment amongst kids that they that who's got the best knife or who's got the most outrageous knife or or, or all that sort of thing uh, and the thing about knife carrying is that you know if you not carry a knife you're, you're either going to become an offender or you're going to become a victim and quite often you'll become both of those it's not something which is going to work out Um, well for you when you look at the issue of uh, e-cigarettes and vaping that's another example where kids aren't buying e-cigarettes necessarily for the purpose of 
uh, nicotine and the and the craving of nicotine. They're buying e-cigarettes to see who can blow the biggest cloud in the playground. It's more of a competition and game than it is necessarily about the driving that nicotine addiction as it used to be in relation to tobacco. So there's a whole range of complex issues that sit behind the reason why these are age-restricted and, and the drivers that are actually leading kids to attempt to, to purchase them and therefore the demand for them from those young people. It, it, it's quite a complex picture. Brandon, what effect are budget cuts having on enforcement around age-restricted sales? Oh, it's something we, we see in, in every authority. No, no authority in the country has been immune to cuts. And the cuts can be anything from 20%, probably right up to in excess of 50, 70%. So those, those resource cuts, uh, it's not only in the numbers, but also the, the loss of, of expertise and experience. So the sort of top end, the people with the most experience may well have been retirement age and they're the ones that may well have gone in, in any reorganisation and restructured to save resources and save money. So I, I think... You know, the numbers of people we've got that sort of know what they're doing and can get on with it are obviously diminishing and they're being pulled in different ways. So specialist officers probably are in short supply nowadays where people have to, to be able to react to almost anything that happens. And we know that trading standards come with a vast array of, of regulations. Veronica, do you tend to collaborate with other authorities and organisations much? We do collaborate a lot. We're a very small authority, so it's very difficult for us to do things on our own. So we collaborate with other local authorities. And we also work quite closely with Police Scotland in our area, HMRC. We have a warden service in the council area that I work in, so they're in the same building as ourselves. So we do collaborate a lot with them. We share intel about who's selling, and they can tell me information about alcohol, which then I can tell them information about who's selling tobacco. And it kind of ties in quite neatly. It means that we can do um, a lot of what we call hot swap activities, so if we've got a lot of youth disorder in the area, which isn't always, it just um, happens, but it does happen sometimes in the summer. Um, it means that we can target those traders to give them support so that they are quite clear that they are refusing these sales. And if they feel threatened in any way, then they can contact the police or the warden service and, and get some information from us. We've also provided them with some really good information from Ash Scotland, some campaign materials called Hashtag Not A Favour, which is all around preventing the proxy purchase by other adults um, for young people. People. And this year we're going forward, we're going to use um, hashtag you're asking for it, which is the Scottish Grocers Federation campaign and preventing proxy purchases. So by working with these partner agencies, and particularly there, I work in British Transport Police as well, um, because we have quite a good rail network, and we work together to prevent these hotspot activities occurring. And, and how do you think things could be done better? I think a lot of it is education, really. I think we've done great work in tobacco across the country in educating traders and in preventing sales, um, you know, asking for proof of age and things like that. I think we have to continue on with that. We have to help young people as well and educate them, make it easier for them to prove who they are and what age they are, you know, using some maybe perhaps innovative you know, solutions for that. Overall, it is an educational thing, but I think because we're so small now, we've had such savage cuts, it's really difficult to do that part when you're really having to do all sorts of jobs that many of you did before but you're you know our, our resources are decreasing and our portfolio seems to be increasing and, and that makes it quite difficult to do that so the education is the cherry and the icing and the cake but we're not getting to do all of that because we don't have the resources or the money no, no staff no money tony what, what do you think could be done to improve the way we deal with underage sales 
the biggest thing that's really needed is to coordinate and to, and to consolidate what is there. At the moment, we have effectively we've got nine different government departments that oversee various age restrictions within their remit of work. They all approach it in a very different way, and the guidance that comes out from them isn't really that consistent. So if you are a provider of a product uh, where you're selling multiple age-restricted products, as indeed a general retailer probably would. You've got to try to comply with nine different ways of how they see their controls working. A good example of that is the Offensive Weapons Bill, because although the Offensive Weapons Bill is trying to tackle a particular issue, the way it's been worded and the, and the way that the uh, statutory reasonable precautions and due diligence defence is set out is very different in that bill than it has been for previous uh, bits of legislation. Now, you could argue it's better, or you could argue that it's not quite as good. It's, the point is, it's different, and I, I wouldn't want to say it's not in force yet, so I wouldn't say whether it's any better or any worse. And I know you'll be chairing an expert panel on underage sales in the coming days. What's, what's the thinking behind that? The government has, for a number of years, had the uh, what is now called the Office for Product Safety and Standards, and that has a role to play in terms of ensuring consistent, operable and uh, supported advice to retailers, uh, either through the primary authority scheme that they run or just in terms of general guidance and uh, advice issued by government. And so we have been working with the uh, Office for Product Safety and Standards to get that restarted. It kind of was running there, fell into abeyance about three or four years ago, but to get that restarted, and largely because of the things that are happening in legislation at the moment with knives, with online harms, with adult access to pornography, with gambling changes, with forthcoming potential changes to the licensing regime, all of that stuff is happening. And, and the purpose of the expert panel is to be a collection of acknowledged and recognised experts in this field that the government can come to and say, look, we've got this piece of legislation, we want to produce guidance related to it. How can you guys advise us and help us to get that right and get that right first time? In terms of people coming along, you have um, uh, industry representatives from the actual retailers, so from the British Retail Consortium, the Association of Convenience Stores, the National Federation of Retail News Agents, the gambling uh, industry associations and various others. Um, you then have people who provide... Uh, age verification services such as the pass card issuers, um, the uh, online age verification uh, tools, the uh, age estimation and ID scanning uh, organisations and then you have uh, people who are engaged in the regulatory side from the Gambling Commission, from Trading Standards to Police from uh, those and then the final set of that jigsaw is people who are from government and from the various different departments that have age restrictions within their remit. So Brandon, what advice would you give to others in the profession when working on age-restricted sales? I think one of the important things that we've come across over the years, and we're talking to businesses and listening to, to them and their experiences of working with trading standards, it's very important that trading standards officers, when advising a business, is to make it clear that this is what the legislation says and this is what a, a minimum standard is and then separate that a little bit from what good practice is. So, 
for instance, Challenge 21 or Challenge 25, it's not a legal requirement in, in most cases to have a Challenge 25 in place. But actually, it's a really good precaution. And if everybody applies the same thing, requesting ID, it makes it much easier and less confrontational because young people expect it everywhere they go. They're going to be asked for the same thing and every business has the same system. So it's just making sure that we're clear. And I know we ran into some problems around knife sales where some authorities were advising a business that, you know, you, you shouldn't sell to an adult a knife that was intended for, a, say, a 16-year-old. Well, it could be that 16-year-old was at catering college and needed a, a set of kitchen knives to take to, to their college with them. But there was no, and still is no, proxy sale offence. So it's just trying to make sure that we know that what we're doing is is the law and we're not gold plating. So I think that from that angle, that helps and that builds up the trust. And, and ultimately, why do you think it's important to have age restrictions on certain products? The counter argument to not having age restrictions on products. I mean, people would say, well, it's nanny state. People should be free to make their choices, leave it to parents to, to control their own children. Unfortunately, we know that that doesn't happen. The common thread through age restricted products, I mean, they are very different, but they're all harmful in one way or another to health or safety or both. And decisions have been taken society-wise within in the UK and, and in most countries of the world to actually restrict the access to children. It sends a message that you know, this is what the, the line is. You, you need to be 18 or, or whatever the age happens to be to, to buy this particular product and then hopefully use it. It sends a good, clear message to a parent or, or guardian. This is the age at which it's safe or acceptable for that individual to make a decision on whether they're going to use a, a particular product or not. So I think it's, it's, it's quite important. People like to have guidelines and some sort of clear goal. You take guidelines away and then nobody really knows. So what doesn't help is when you start sort of mixing up the messages so that nobody really knows and then actually there, there is no control. So I think it's, it's vital to have something. And if it's a consistent age, so when tobacco went from 16 to 18, so that most products that, that we were involved in regulating were 18, the retailers actually found it easier. Most retailers agreed with us and, and they wanted it to be 18 for tobacco as well because it made it easier for their training and easier for their signage and a much easier all ways around. Well, for me, I think if you look, when I touched on it earlier on, there are a number of reasons why the products are age restricted in the first place. You know, I'm a mother myself. My kids are older now. They range from 30 down to 22. But when they were younger, there's lots of things that you, you don't want them to see or hear. You don't want them to experience until they're mature enough to do so. So tobacco is a really good example. You know, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you wouldn't have, you know, you would have thought it was a terrible thing, but nobody would have given anyone into trouble if they saw a young person smoking they were younger, you know, 12, 13, 14 now, you know, the, the bulk of children under 18 will not have tried tobacco. You know, it's a cultural change we're going for because the health implications for the for the length of their life are so great if they, t you know, take up tobacco at an early age. Um, so I think, well, to me, that's the reason why it is important. You know, if, if, if you can 
you need, we need our young people to grow up in a safe environment till they get to an age where they're mature enough to make an adult decision about what they want to do with their life, whether they want to smoke or drink or, you know, go to see 18 films or whatever it is that they've decided to do. You know, we have these rules for a reason. It's, they're not, it's, it's not just plucked out the air. We've, we've made these rules because we want to protect young people. Well, that's it for another episode. Thanks to Brandon Cook, Veronica McGinley and Tony Allen for speaking to us. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again in a fortnight with more insight into the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.